All right, Mosaic, how are we doing? Well, if we have not met, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're excited that you're here. This is the last week of a two-month series we've been in, journeying uh, through the Psalms, something that the church has done for literally hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's been a good journey, and if you've been around and you're seeing that video again, you're like, what, is this deja vu? I swear I just watched that like two weeks ago. Didn't we already do Psalm 23? And the answer is yes, we did the first verse anyway, and uh, the plan was to do back-to-back weeks and really just marinate in the text of Psalm 23. And, uh, and then, a week from last Friday, uh, I threw my back out, because apparently I'm getting old, and things like that happened uh, when you've got the salt and pepper and your body doesn't work like it used to. And so I was in a chiropractic office for a week, and uh, Mike was my hero and stepped in. Uh, but I did want to circle back and spend one more week in Psalm 23. And, uh, and I honestly, I think it's actually a really appropriate week for us to wrap up this series as we talk about uh, the, sur- the surrendered soul. And, um, you know, if you remember, as it relates to Psalm 23, this is a psalm that's written by David. And uh, not only was David a king and a leader and a ruler and a man after God's own heart, but David uh, was a shepherd. And the first time we find him in the scriptures is he's actually off... Uh, up in the high country, tending his father's flocks. And so when he writes Psalm 23, he uses this metaphor, comparing God to the great shepherd and us to sheep. And as a shepherd, somebody who's lived this uh, for years and years and years, uh, there's so much added layer and depth and meaning in his words that we just generally don't pick up on because we live in 2016 in Lincoln, Nebraska. And although we're in Nebraska, most of us are not farmers, all right? Let alone sheep farmers from the ancient Near East. So uh, I want to mine some of these things out for us. But before we do, uh, I want to share a short story. Um, I know Bill asked the question, you know, a time in your life when you kind of went with the flow and kind of succumbed to the whole pack mentality, the herd mentality. And for me, probably the most clearest time of my life when those groups and those herds are clearly defined that I can remember was high school. And uh, I don't know if high school is like this anymore. I've been out of the game for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that now. Um, but in, when I was in high school, they were in the high school I went to, the groups were very well defined. You had the jocks and the cheerleaders. Um, and you had, you know, like the music and band people. And then you had like the drama group, which at my school was some of the cool kids, which was really, being from Minnesota, totally threw me off. Uh, and then you had, you know, the people that were competing in like science and, and math and spelling and geography and all those different things. And then you had the skaters. And then you had like the emo crew who was always in black and wore eye makeup and looked depressed all the time. You know, and, and for me, I didn't really fit entirely with any one group. I was mostly, if there's any group that I probably most closely associate with, it was jocks. And by the way, I married a cheerleader. So I don't know if, what that means with you, how you feel about me, but Megan was a cheerleader. How you feel about Megan either. But, uh, <laughs> but I married one. Nothing against cheerleaders. But, uh, you know, for me, I had been a wild child. Uh, and then right halfway through high school, God got a hold of my life in this unexpected, unplanned, uh, honestly, at that point in my life, undesired way. And it changed my life forever. And I was a part of pretty wild teams, a wild child. And uh, my basketball team especially. These guys, they were crazy. They were a crazy group of guys. And every Monday morning, there was this, this unspoken tradition when we were in the locker room. And that was locker room talk. And they started talking about that weekend. Who they were with, who they got with, how much they drank, how many times they threw up, who passed out at the party, which ones got broken up by the cops. And it was just, you know, every guy trying to one-up the other guy. 
and it was ridiculous. And, and I was not a part of those conversations because that's just not something I was doing at that my, point in my life anymore. And, uh, and so I kind of became like the punching bag in a sense. And we were good friends, but one, day, one week, one of the guys turned to me after talking about all of his escapades that weekend. He goes, hey, Loy, how much does God hate me? You know, and, and I said, well, he doesn't, he doesn't hate you. I do, but he doesn't, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and this became like this banter between us of like every Monday. We would get into this whole team, and, and somebody every week is usually the same guy, but other guys got in on it. I was like, hey, Lloyd, does God still love me? Huh? Huh? You know? And every week I'd say, he does. I don't know why, but he does. You know, and, and in time, those conversations started actually to turn a little bit more serious once we were out of the locker room. And, and I'll never forget one day, uh, I got kicked out of class with a few other guys for horsing around. And we were sitting on the hall, and one of them turned to me, and he said, he said, Lloyd, you really believe this stuff, huh? And I said, you know, I do. And they said, what do you believe? You know, and I, and I got to share with them uh, my heart and what God had done in my life. And a few months later, uh, one of the main guys pulled me aside uh, at high school, and he said, he said, Loy, um, can I talk with you? And he said, I, I just found out that my girlfriend is pregnant, and I've got this football scholarship, and if she has this baby, uh, I'm going to lose everything, and I can't do that. And he said, what do I do, you know? Um, and we started to talk, and unbeknownst to me, what I didn't realize until that moment, that God had been working on my buddy's heart for some time. And he was actually starting to believe, and he started asking me questions like, if I do this thing, will God still love me? If I do the right thing, what then? Like, is God going to sell me out? Like, am I on my own? What do I have to stop? What do I have to start? What is God going to expect of me? You know, and, and as, as a pastor, the question that really I think he was asking, and the question behind all the other questions is the same question I run into all the time, and that is, can, can God be trusted? Like, really? Not with a little bit of my life, but if I was to surrender everything, can I really trust God with everything? And I think, you know, for most of us, depending on the day, depending on your background, I, I, I don't know that we're so sure. Right? This distrust of God, is, it's what caused in the creation story, Adam and Eve, to bail, to rebel. Because at their heart, they didn't trust God. They, they believed that God was holding on to them. You know, and so for, for people in this community, I sit down with people who have not yet crossed the line of faith. And these are the questions they're asking, right? The question is, like, if I become a Christian, if I begin to follow Jesus, what is he going to require of me? What do I have to stop? What do I have to start? What does this actually entail? Can I really trust him? Right? And even some of you, some of the people that have been following Jesus for a long time, it's still the same question. You know, it's like there's these areas of my life that I remain unsurrendered, like, like, God, you can have this stuff, but not this. You know, and as they're processing through, the, the struggle, the, the, the disbelief is, God, can you be trusted? Really? You know, and so today what I want to do as we wrap up this series and as we journey through Psalm 23 is I want to put that question on the table. As we read through Psalm 23 verse by verse and ask, can God be trusted? Right, if I surrender my life into his hands, all of it, what, what can I expect, really? All right, so beginning in verse 1, this is how Psalm 23 begins. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down 
in green pastures. He makes me lie down. If you're taking notes, uh, number one, uh, when God takes control, you can expect some frustration and confusion. I know that's not a really high selling point, but it's the truth. You know, in fact, let's just do a little survey, and if you will, just humor me and participate. If you are a follower of Jesus, just out of curiosity, if you've ever found yourself in a season where you were confused about what God was up to in your life, would you just be willing to raise your hand right now? All right, if you just look around. Yeah, welcome to the club. Right, that's one of the the universal experiences, is that oftentimes we do not understand. Uh, We do not understand at all. But as it results, like, as it pertains to this picture of the shepherd and and the sheep, This is one of the critical uh, roles of the shepherd, right? The picture we're given is of a sheep lying down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In order for a sheep, because of the kind of creatures they are, in order for a sheep to be able to lie down, that can be a tall order. There's a few different things that have to be true. First of all, right, the sheep has to be free of fear, right? And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that can be a tall order. Sheep are not strong. They're not tough. They have no protective qualities, no shell, no quills, no bite, no venom, no protective smell like skunks, really nothing. They're completely vulnerable. And so they can be really skittish. In fact, a jackrabbit jumping out of the bushes can send a, a flock of hundreds into a stampede, right? Because they just their immediate reaction is to run. They're an animal that's plagued by fear, and, and for good reason, right? In fact, it's been known that just two dogs, like given free reign on a herd of sheep, in one night can kill almost 300 of them. And they have no way to, to protect themselves. Right? So in order, this picture, he makes me lie down in green pastures. In order for sheep to lie down, they have to be free of fear, meaning they have to know that it's safe, that the shepherd's close, and that the shepherd can handle it. Right? Secondly, they have to be free of hunger. A hungry sheep does not lie down. In fact, sheep will walk. If they're hungry, they will walk for miles and miles and miles until their belly is full, even if they're walking the opposite direction of where the food actually is. So their tangible needs have to be met. Their, their belly has to be full. And thirdly, this is one of, a unique one to sheep. But sheep are really prone to be plagued by parasites and by ticks and by all different kinds of flies. Bot flies, nasal flies, and it's particularly bad in the summer. Yeah, they're kind of disgusting animals. Right? I told you my, my grandpa had sheep on his farm. And you constantly had to treat these sheep, or this is what happened. They'd be, drive, they'd just be driven nuts by all of the bugs and the pests and the flies, right? So when they're, when they're, when they're covered, right, when they're, they're struggling with this, sheep do not lie down. They can't. In fact, they will spend all night on their feet, right? They will stamp their legs. They will run headlong into brush and bushes. Uh, in fact, sheep have been known when they're really struggling with this and plagued by pests, they will bash their head against a rock, just trying to make it stop, sometimes to their death, and, uh, which is a sad picture, but it's just true. Right? And so here's the thing. If you have a cruel shepherd, hired hands, itinerant uh, shepherds who it's not their flock, a cruel shepherd will leave the sheep just to fend for themselves. And if they're miserable, they're miserable. Right? But a loving shepherd will actually spend a, a lot of money on expensive chemicals and help the sheep and treat the sheep. But here's the thing. Here's the point. Even as the shepherd does this, the, she- the sheep are confused as to what the, the shepherd is up to. Because what the shepherd will actually do is he will have a septic tank and he will pour the chemicals in there and one by one, the shepherd will lead the sheep into the septic tank. And the sheep will kind of freak out, right? Because it smells bad, right? It's, it's scary to them. Uh, if they have any open cuts or wounds, it actually is, is a painful experience. Right? So the sheep are very scared and they look to the shepherd feeling betrayed. Like, what are you doing to me in this moment? 
right? But what they don't understand is this is for their own good. And if, you've, if you have kids that are young or you ever, if you ever had in the past, you know exactly what this is like. It's like when you take your kids to go get shots. Anybody have to do that? It is the worst. You take your kid in. I had to take Jackson in not long ago, and he had like four shots he was behind on. And you walk in. If they've ever been there before, they're freaked out, right? They might be crying already. If they're not, they're in for a surprise, right? And they might chill out there until they get the first shot, but then they lose it, right? They're screaming. They're thrashing. They're looking at you like, get me out of here. And then the nurse says the worst words that a parent never wants to hear, I need your help holding him down, Right? And you have to hold, physically restrain your child as he gets poked, you know, with a needle a, a couple more times. And it's the worst. And your child looks up at you like, what are you doing to me? You have betrayed me. I thought you loved me. What is happening? But what the child doesn't understand in that moment is that as a parent, you're doing everything you can to protect that child. Right? And even as what they're going through right now may be painful and scary and they don't understand it, uh, it's for their own good. Right? And that's the challenge for sheep and for those of us who are sheep in the care of the great shepherd is there are times when you should expect pain and confusion because God is doing something and bringing you to a place that right now you don't understand. But we have to trust his heart that he actually cares about your well-being a lot more than you or I do. All right, number two, if you're taking notes, uh, expect to be led gently. I love this. It says, Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, right? And in, in the shepherding picture, this is a picture of life itself, right? A sheep is composed of over 70% water, and a sheep needs water to survive. If the, if the sheep does not get clean water, fresh water on a regular basis, it will begin to wither, and it will not be able to survive, and the shepherd will lose absolutely everything. But one of the interesting things about sheep is that sheep are terrified of rushing water. They won't go near it. Right? And part of that is for good reason. They're not strong swimmers. And if they have a thick, heavy coat, if they get in the water and that becomes heavy, it can cause them to drown. So as a shepherd's task, this picture of he leads me beside quiet waters, one of the things that a good shepherd would do is they will lead the flock as far down the river as they have to go to quiet waters where the sheep can actually drink the water that they need to survive, to live. And amazing, one of the things uh, when that's not possible, one of the things that a good shepherd will do is he will lead them down to the quietest area of the river that he can find and actually use rocks to dam up the water and build a little canal so that the sheep can actually drink and get what they need. Right? And one of the just cool things about that to me, you know, is that the rushing water is just as good as the pooled up water. Right? But in that moment, what the shepherd is doing is it's adapting to the weaknesses and the limitations of the sheep. Right? And that's the picture that we're given of God. Right, you got to know that God is not, uh, he's not surprised by any of your weaknesses. Right, your limitations do not throw him off. In fact, one of the things we find about the good shepherd, the heart of God, is that he takes into account all of our limitations and weaknesses. Right, listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Right? He's not a cruel shepherd who leaves us to, be, to fend for ourselves. 
And he's not a cruel shepherd who uses, you know, holds our weaknesses and limitations against us. In fact, Jesus, who was called the good shepherd, said this in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my weight, take my burden, take my calling upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right, that is the heart of a good, good shepherd. Number three, as God takes control, uh, you can expect a blessing and not a beating. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And get this, he restores my soul. Right? Now, this is really important. Right? Whether you have not yet really crossed that line of faith and you're weighing things for yourself, whether you're brand new to following Jesus, or whether you've been at this for a really long time, one of the things that you, you have to know is that God's aim is always, always, always restoration. Right? This is, that's the message and movement of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to usher in the kingdom, what he is doing, what God is up to in the world, is restoring all things. Right? He is a God who is in the restoration business. His desire is to restore you, not to, not to just wreak and unleash vengeance on you. Right, and it's so important for us to get this because here's the thing. The moment, the moment that we take, off, take our eyes off the good shepherd, we can come to believe all kinds of things about God. Right, Brandon Manning is one of my favorite authors and, and pastors, thinkers of all time. And one of the things that he used to talk about a lot is that what he found over and over and over again is that when Christians took their eyes off of Jesus and they stopped reading and learning the character of God from the scriptures themselves, is what we end up doing is oftentimes is we project onto God our own hateful feelings towards ourselves and others. I can't remember who said it, but they said, you know, God, God created mankind in his own image, and then mankind returned the favor. You know, and the reason that this is so important is we get off. We, we miss the heart of God. And this, by the way, is the reason that you get groups like Westboro Baptist. Right? Groups who will go and picket the funerals of soldiers. Or who will celebrate publicly when a tragedy like what just happened in Orlando just happened. And what they will call it is the vengeance of God. Oh, this is just God giving us what we deserve. Because we are a country that has not outlawed abortion. Or a country who has not yet, you know, rejected uh, and persecuted the LGBT community. To them, God is a vengeful God. A God that is full of wrath. Right, who watches our every step and is just waiting for us to slip up so he can unleash holy hell on this world. Right, it's a hateful, spiteful God. It's a scary God. You know, but the problem with that is Jesus. You open up the scriptures and ask God, what kind of God are you? And you know, and we've, I said this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say it again. One of the things that we talk about lot, a lot about here is that the testimony of the scriptures, what we believe, hist- the whole history of, of the movement of Jesus of the church, is that in Jesus, we get the most vivid picture of what God is really like. Right? He's the divine word and revelation with skin on. As much of God that can be crammed into a human being, that's Jesus. 
That's what we believe. That's what the scriptures testify to. And you start to study Jesus, and you're not going to find a God like the God that Westboro Baptist believes in. Right? Jesus steps into the scene, and if, in fact, he is God, he has every right to judge. In fact, he's the only one who has the right. And if he chose to judge and unleash condemnation on the world, although he says precisely what he did not come to do, it would have been righteous. It would have been right, but that's not what he does. Right? Jesus doesn't call for blood or demand it. Instead, he willingly pours out his own. Right? He doesn't bring a list of all the ways that we fall short and unleash judgment on the world. Instead, he takes all of our shortcomings onto himself, and then he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Right? My, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It is finished. Right? Follow me and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That is Jesus. And you know what? Jesus talked a lot about God's heart for people, what the heart of the good shepherd is actually like. In fact, he actually used shepherd and sheep imagery at different times. And one of the things that he said was this, and this is in Matthew 18. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one lost sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And then he says this, get this, in verse 14, he says, In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I hear that. God's heart, his desire is not judgment, not for you and not for anybody. That's not what he longs for. Right, the imagery that Jesus is alluding to here, we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago, and it's the idea of a sheep being cast down or downcast in biblical language. And what would happen, if you remember, is sheep, when they actually do lie down, if a gust of wind hits them or there's a little crevice in the dirt and they're not paying attention, they can accidentally start to roll over, and they get to a certain point where they get stuck. And once they get past like 45 degrees, they can't get back over, and gas will start to fill their belly, and it'll start to cut off circulation to their limbs, and if a shepherd does not come find them, they will die. Within a few hours in a hot climate, they might last a day in a cooler climate. Right? And this is why the, the Bible talks all the time about good shepherds keeping watch over their flock. And a good shepherd also keeps their eye to the sky. Right? And the moment that they start seeing vultures circle, they go sprinting into the herd. And what is that shepherd there to do? Right? To beat the sheep? Right? To, to berate the sheep? You stupid sheep. When are you going to learn how to roll over? Turtles have figured this out. Beetles have figured this out. All kinds of things. You're the only animal I know. Do you know how extra work you're creating for me? No, the, the, the shepherd's there to save that sheep's life. To help that fallen sheep back up onto its feet. To restore that sheep. And that's the heart of the good shepherd. And that's God's desire for you. Now, if you choose to reject God repeatedly, just so you know... There's consequences for that, just as there are in every area of life. And if you choose that, you'll have to live with those. And if you continue down the direction, uh, you're going to have to die with those. All right, one of the truths about the good shepherd is the gate is always open, but he does not force any of us to comply, to come into the fold, and to worship him. That's something that we ultimately have to choose, but you have to know that God's heart always, always, always is restoration, not judgment. Judgment is always a last resort. So you can expect a blessing and not a beating, and I think that's pretty good news. Number four, 
Expect to be led clearly. It reads, he guides me along paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this just for time's sake. But what I want to tell you is just this. Right? God's desire for your life is not that you spend your life in confusion as to what his will is. Right? That would be cruel. Right? And I grew up in, a, in an environment where sometimes we kind of got lost in that. God, what do you want for my life? What do you want? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? But as it pertains to God, everything that you need to know for what he desires for you, for what walking in righteousness, following him looks like, we have already been given in the scriptures. Or if you want to know what God's will is for your life, just crack it open. If you don't know where to start, just start to read and learn Jesus. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Watch how he lives. Watch how he speaks and treats people. Watch how he loves Watch how he sacrifices for the good of others. You begin to walk down that path and you can't go wrong. Your life in this world would be a much better place. That's all I'm going to say about that. Number five, expect to be cared for. Expect to be cared for. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, one of the things you might have already picked up on is this is an incredibly personal psalm. Right? There's no they or we or us. There is me and he and I and you. And up until now in this psalm, he talks about God as he. Right? He says, the, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he makes me lie down. Right? He leads me. He restores my soul. But now there's a change in the language. As he begins to talk about walking through the darkest valley, or the valley of the shadow of death, the valley, valley of suffering, the valley of anxiety, the valley of despair, the valley of depression, the valley of fear. His language, a very personal psalm, becomes even more personal. He begins to address God in the first person. And he, he says, I will not fear for you, Lord God, are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. Now, Philip Keller uh, who wrote uh, the book that I, I quoted a couple weeks ago called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Great book, classic book. He talks about from a shepherd's perspective. He's a shepherd for much of his life. He said from a shepherd's perspective, uh, this is not surprising. In fact, it's normal and natural. Right? Because the way that sheep are taken care of in most of the world where there are seasons is it's organized around the seasons. And so during the winter months when it's cold and it's bleak and food is scarce, they keep the sheep at home where there's shelter, where there's an abundance of feed, uh, winter feed that's been saved up. But then as the temperature gets warmer, and it turns into spring and summer, uh, good shepherds will drive the sheep outward, and they'll go on a very long trek and begin to work their way up the mountain. As the snow melts uh, into the summer, they actually follow the receding snow up into the mountains. Until by that late summer and early autumn, they're way above the timber line, they're in alpine meadows, they're way up in the high country. And they'll stay there. Uh, for a good chunk of the year until the early snows of, of fall and, and early winter happen, and then they'll start moving their way back down the mountain. And he says, he talks about, you know, when he's talking about the valley of the shadow of death, what he's describing is not being on the, the prairie pastures or being at home in the safety of refuge. It's describing the only time when sheep are up on the mountain and they're by themselves, it is just them and the shepherd. Right? It, it's that season of time. And so the backdrop. The backdrop is not home. It's not safety. The backdrop is wild mountains, rushing rivers, alpine meadows, and high rangelands. 
right? Territory where the weather can change at a moment's notice to sleet and snow and hail, right? A place where a sudden slip can mean death for a sheep or a flock. We're talking about floods, avalanches, rock slides, poisonous plants, and a place where dangerous predators reside. This is their feeding ground. This is a dangerous place. And David says in this place, right, this language, he makes a shift and he says, but I do not fear for you are with me. And in the same sentence, he says, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? The rod and the staff are typically the only things that a shepherd would carry up with him to the high mountains. In the the ancient world, this was the universal tools of the shepherding trade. Every shepherd had these. And a staff most of us are pretty familiar with. The staff is the one with the hook on it. You know, all the pictures of shepherds all have one of those. Jesus, you know, has those in the classic pictures. Right? And those are used for, for helping birth sheep, uh, helping keep sheep with their, their mothers. If a sheep falls down in a ravine, it's used to carry them out of that. But what people don't often realize is what a rod is. Right? When a shepherd boy gets to the age where he's starting to care for his father's flocks, one of the first rites of passage, one of the great rites of passage that he would do is begin to, to choose a staff and a rod for himself. And what he would do is he'd go out on the bush and he would pick a young tree. And what they would do is they would actually dig out that tree around the roots and take it out. And they would begin to craft for him a rod that is designed specifically for his size and his strength. And what they would do is around where the roots meet the branch, they would begin to, to, to make that into a smooth, very hard head of the club. And then on the actual trunk of the young tree, the sapling, they would begin to shape it perfectly for his hand and his hand only. And as he grew older, immediately what he would do, from that moment, he would begin practicing with that rod. And it's amazing, uh, as they grow older, how incredibly accurate shepherds would become. They would become deadly, actually from a a pretty great distance. And uh, shepherds would often compete in that kind of a thing, because that's what guys do. But... uh, but David, so you've got to understand, when we read, Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When, when he's talking about a staff and a rod, this is David the shepherd. This is the language and the picture that he has in mind. Right? That, that, what that, that rod became was an extension of that shepherd's right arm. Right? It was symbolic of his authority, of his power, of his strength. Right? And that is what he's describing here. Right, but here's one thing that, that sometimes I think we miss, uh, even, as, even for those of us who know what a rod is, and that is the rod was used. It was oftentimes the only line of defense to protect both the shepherd and the sheep from coyotes, bears, wolves, uh, all of the predators that live in the high country. But it wasn't just for protection. It was also for disciplining the sheep. And I know this isn't a very popular idea, but if we're being really honest and candid and showing all of our cards on what to expect when God takes over, one of the things that you should expect is that if you keep on rebelling and doing things that are sucking the life out of you and leading you towards death, whether it be physical or spiritual, the Lord disciplines us. Right? In fact, there's multiple t- places in the scripture, a couple of them being Hebrews 12 and Proverbs 3, where it says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And if you're a parent, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because good parents discipline their kids, bad, unholy, ungodly parents do not punish their kids and they make the world a much more horrible place, right? We punish our kids. We do it lovingly, we do it gently, but we discipline them, right? Because when I think about Paige and Chloe and Jackson, I love those kids and I know that one day they're not going to be in my home anymore, right? If they choose, if if they neglect the fact that there's right and wrong, there's good and there's evil, if they don't realize there's consequences for their actions when they get out of my home, 
the consequences are much more severe. And at times it can be much more permanent. Right? So I want them to learn while they're in the safety of my own home. Right? And God, the Heavenly Father, is the same way. Right? He knows what we cannot know. He sees what we cannot see. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows where the pitfalls are. He knows where the contaminated drink is. He knows where the poison is. He knows the stuff that's going to be toxic for us. Right? And so when we, when we just insist on rebellion, it, when God takes control, he's going, to, he's going to lovingly discipline us because he cares, precisely because he loves you and me. And lastly, I'd say this. When God takes control, if you surrender your life into his hands and you become a part of the fold, expect to be relentlessly pursued. We read, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right, when we read this in the English, sometimes the word follow can throw us off a little bit because it doesn't quite capture the fullness and the beauty of the Hebrew word. Follow in the English language can mean, you know, to lag behind. So if you read it that way, you know, it'd be surely your goodness and love will lag behind me all the days of my life. That's not very hopeful, but that's not what the Hebrew word is. The Hebrew word actually is, is a lot more active than the word follow. Um, oftentimes it means uh, to pursue, and oftentimes it has the sense of harm or to persecute. All right, so we are talking about aggressive pursuit, right? Surely your goodness and love will aggressively pursue me all the days of my life, even, even as you run. Right, this is one of the reasons, if we could share our stories, those of us who are followers of Jesus, one of the common things that you hear over and over and over again is once people finally cross that line of faith and they become a part of the fold of God, oftentimes, retrospectively, they can see times in their life when God was pursuing them and they just didn't realize it at the time. Right, and and that's, that's the truth. That's the way God works. Right, that's the picture here. It's this picture almost as like a mighty rushing stream rushing down the mountain. It's like you're not going to get away from it, right? It cannot be stopped. It will not be stopped. God is going to go to great lengths to do everything he can to save you, to embrace you, to make sure you're not one of the sheep that gets devoured or finds its way off the side of a mountain. All right, so my question is why, why in the world would you run from that? You know, sometimes I think we can get so caught up in trying to, to be right, and it's like a Christian disease. And even those of us who are skeptics, I'm naturally a skeptic, and so I love learning about different faiths. And even within the Christian faith, you have a lot of variety. You know, even just this last week, I was talking with a friend of mine who I love dearly, but he's struggling. He's been struggling for a long time because he's trying to figure out, within the Christian faith, who's exactly right and who's wrong. You know, and so he began to share with me. He's like, I'm, I was studying Catholic faith. You know, and there's things about the faith that really appeal to me and they make sense and I see them in the scriptures. But then there's this other stuff. And the Baptists, and he started making his way through every group, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Evangelicals, you name it. And he said, I just can't figure out who's right and who's wrong. And so he's stuck. Right? And maybe in this room, maybe that's right where you're at. Right? And my word to you would just be this. We're all wrong. Right? In some way, shape, or form. 
And no, no group, I don't think, is exactly right. In fact, I would say we're only right in so much as we are following after the Good Shepherd faithfully. But if you look to any herd, any group of Christians to show you perfectly what God is like, uh, you're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. Because in every community, in every tribe of Christian faith, you've got good sheep and you've got bad sheep. <laughs> you know, you've got sheep that walk faithfully after the shepherd, and then you've got rebellious sheep. Right? And one of the things that we learn about sheep is they follow one another, for better or for worse. Some of them insist on drinking contaminated water, even as there's fresh streams 10 feet away. Right? As we read about a couple weeks ago, 1,400 sheep, one by one, right off the edge of a cliff. Several hundred of them died. Right? Sheep will follow each other for better or for worse. And I, my encouragement to you is that if you want to know who's right and who's wrong, if you want to know the life that God offers don't look at me. I'm just another sheep. Right? And don't even look at, it, at, at any one community of faith. The truth is, I'm going to fail you. Mosaic's going to fail you. Every sheep will inevitably fail you in some way. But the good shepherd will never fail you. It's his love that you want. It's his provision. It's his care. It's his direction. And each of us is invited to be a part of that. So Aaron, what do you want me to do with this message? I, I want you to, to trust him. I want you to know what it's like to be led and taken care of by the good shepherd. Right? And if you've never crossed that line of faith, don't put it off another day. I'm telling you, coming under the care and guidance of the good shepherd, that is Jesus, is the best decision that you will ever make. And for those of us who have already made that decision, it's not a one-time thing. It's not hey, you know, I'm coming into the fold, I pray a prayer of commitment, I get baptized, and then it's done. Choosing to follow the shepherd is something that we do every single day, something we need to do every single day. So as the band comes up and as we wrap up this series, I just want to give us an opportunity together to do that. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we take communion as often as we do. And man, I'm... There's a part of me that just wants to take communion every week. We may start doing that. I don't know. Because in communion, what we're doing is we're, again, we're centering our hearts. We're taking our eyes off of our circumstances and the busyness and the pressures and the responsibilities of Monday through Saturday or Monday through Friday and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, reflecting on the sacrifice, right, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was poured out for us by the good shepherd so that ours wouldn't have to be, so that we could live the life we were created to live under the care and guidance, instruction, provision of the good shepherd. Jesus said these words we read in Luke 22, beginning in verse 19. It says, And Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body that's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. So we're going to close by doing that. Mosaic, if you go ahead and stand, we're going to take communion together. If you've never taken communion with us, whether you call Mosaic home or not, you're invited to be a part of it. There are little pieces of bread that are symbolic of the body of Jesus that was broken for us a cup of juice that is symbolic of the blood that was poured out for us. 
And you just take that piece of bread and you dip it in that cup. We're going to reflect. We're going to worship together. Also, if you need prayer, there's going to be people in the back who would love uh, to pray over you. If you're going through one of those seasons uh, where you're in the darkest valley and you need some care, we'd love to come around you and pray. So we're going to do that now.